Jesus is saying, when we are insulted, we must not harbor a grudge. We must not nurse a feeling of resentment and anger and bitterness for what that person has done. And we must not retaliate. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Scripture teaches that if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, the desire of your heart should be one of obedience, certainly in times of blessing, but also in difficult times, such as when you're offended or wronged personally. But how exactly is that done? Hello, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom has part three of a series titled An Eye for an Eye. Matthew chapter 5 presents Jesus giving a general principle of an eye for an eye, followed by four categories of justice served or justice received in the matter of personal and civic life. Issues such as whether or not Christians should serve in the military, engage in self-defense, and submit to and respect the use of force by a government. Keep all that in mind as we join Tom for more on The Word Unleashed. We have all heard, of course, of the famous feud, probably the most famous feud in American history between the Hatfields and the McCoys. I don't know how much you've read about that, but believe it or not, that feud began over accusations by one family against the other family that they had stolen their prize hog. The resulting feud spanned 12 years and took 12 human lives. The longest and the most deadly feud in American history was not the Hatfield and McCoy feud. It occurred right here in Texas. It started in the 1820s and ran in one form or another until 1932, over a hundred years. It was the Baker-White feud. It actually became so bad that today some Texas historians refer to it as the Clay County War. It all started with an insult. Not an insult of one of the Bakers or one of the Whites, but actually an insult of one of their dogs. And before the hundred years were over, the feud had claimed over 150 human lives. That feud to me is a tragic example of how harboring grudges and pursuing revenge are so utterly destructive to all human relationships. Sadly, it's not just unbelieving families where there are feuds. Every year, countless Christian families feud. Churches split Thousands of Christian spouses live under the same roofs but become enemy combatants. It begins with a wrong, a sin, or a perceived wrong or sin. And then one person allows resentment to grow in their soul over that wrong. And the resentment grows and festers until eventually it spills over in some act of personal revenge. Last week, we began to study the paragraph in the Sermon on the Mount in which our Lord addresses this very issue. And He tells us 
that as his disciples, we must never desire or pursue personal retaliation for wrongs that are done to us. He says grudges and revenge have no place in his spiritual kingdom. Now in this section of the sermon that we're looking at, really begins in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, runs down through the end of the chapter. Jesus gives six illustrations of how his true disciples' righteousness is radically different from the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees that he mentioned back in verse 20. Let's look at it together. Matthew 5, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Now, there are admittedly some difficult statements in this paragraph, and we're going to look at them together. But the essential message of this paragraph is this. In his spiritual kingdom... Jesus will not allow his disciples to harbor grudges or to pursue personal revenge. Now, just to get you up to speed, to remind you of what we covered last time, as he had begun each illustration, Jesus begins this one by highlighting the popular misunderstanding, in this case, of the command of an eye for an eye we began by looking at what the Old Testament law actually taught. Verse 38, you'll see that it quotes the Old Testament. You see, the rabbis used the Old Testament. They used the wording, but they distorted its meaning. And so Jesus mentions it here. What did it mean? Well, we looked at the three passages in the Old Testament where this expression, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, occur. And I'm not going to take you back over that this time, but let me just give you the big picture. In the context of the Old Testament, the point of those words was crystal clear. The punishment must always fit the crime. It wasn't some sort of barbaric thing, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It was, in fact, the foundation of all just legal systems. The punishment must not be too lenient, where it lets the guilty go essentially unpunished, nor may it be too harsh Instead, it must exactly fit the crime. It was, in a sense, a protection. It was a protection against the outrageous penalties that overzealous family members or friends or even judges might exact against a person who had committed the crime against them or the ones they loved. At its most basic level, it was a protection against personal vengeance. Now, let me remind you as well that last time we saw in Deuteronomy 19 that this law was never, ever intended to be something that you as an individual did. It wasn't saying that if someone punched out your tooth, you need to seek that person down and personally exact your revenge by punching out one of theirs. Instead, as Deuteronomy makes very clear 
This eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, was rather the standard that was given to Israel's judges for sentencing criminals. It was to be punishment that fit the crime. Now that's what the Old Testament law actually taught. But what did the scribes and Pharisees teach? What did they do with that? Well, last time we noted that rather than see this, the the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, as direction to judges about their sentencing, the scribes and Pharisees had made this command called the lex talionis, the law of retaliation, about personal retaliation. In other words, they had turned the whole thing on its head. What God intended to be a protection against abuses in the legal system, they had twisted into his permission, in fact, even his authorization to exact personal revenge. That's what the people listening to Jesus there on the hillside, on the north side of the Sea of Galilee that day, had been taught by the scribes and Pharisees. That's what even those who had become now his disciples had been taught. And so Jesus has to correct this. And he absolutely demolishes that popular misconception. Not the Old Testament law. It was just and good and helpful and fair. He demolishes that misunderstanding. And he told his disciples that their righteousness, their obedience to the Scripture in this area of personal offenses, must far surpass that of the scribes. How? Well, that brings us to the second part of this passage in this illustration. Let's look at Jesus' revolutionary teaching about personal revenge. We've seen the the popular misunderstanding of that Old Testament law, an eye for an eye. Now let's look at Jesus' revolutionary teaching about personal revenge. In these verses, Jesus gives us, first of all, a general principle, and then he gives us four specific examples to see what that principle looks like fleshed out in real life. So let's look at it together. In verse 39, Jesus first lays out the general principle. Look at how it begins. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. Jesus says, listen, the rabbis misconstrued the Old Testament law, and they told you it was okay for you as an individual to seek personal revenge. But I'm telling you, Jesus says, Instead, don't resist an evil person. Now, the Greek word translated resist literally means to set oneself against. It means to oppose, to withstand. And it includes the idea of hostility, of being hostile or showing hostility. In fact, in the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, that the Greek speakers of the first century had. It was the Bible of the first century, the Bible the apostles used primarily. The Septuagint uses this word resist in two ways. It uses it most frequently of armed military opposition. It means to set oneself against in a military sense. That's the most frequent use in the Old Testament. It's also used four or five times of opposition in court. So what's Jesus saying then in this general principle? He's saying we are not to return hostility to the evil person who wrongs us. Now, 
By the way, notice here that Jesus is not denying that sometimes evil people do bad things to us. Nor is he denying that even people who maybe know the Lord do evil things to us. Jesus doesn't ask us to condone the person's behavior, but he doesn't allow us to retaliate in kind. So what does Jesus mean here in this general principle? Well, you have to take the statement in its context. Verse 38 deals with response to wrongs and offenses. Verses 39 to 42 provide specific examples of personal wrongs. So the context then of Jesus' statement is when you have been personally wronged, when you have been personally sinned against. That's when this text comes into play. When that happens, if you're a Christian, you are not to set yourself in hostile opposition to that person who has sinned against you. You are not to declare war, as it were. You are not to harbor a grudge, and you are not to seek revenge. Now, I've used those expressions several times, and we'll use them again a number of times before we're done today and the next time we turn to this text. So, let me define them. Let's just make sure we understand each other. What does it mean to harbor a grudge? To harbor a grudge is to maintain a persistent feeling of resentment because of a past insult or injury. To maintain or nurse a consistent feeling of resentment because that other person has injured you or harmed you in some way. It is an internal attitude. It is what goes on in the heart. It is anger and bitterness and resentment in the heart because that person has wronged you. To seek personal revenge is to act on that feeling. To seek personal revenge is either to desire to act or actually to act to inflict harm on someone because of that past insult or injury. So to harbor a grudge is to bear and nurse resentment over that past injury. To seek revenge is to act on that resentment and try to get the other person back. They'll pay for what they've done to me. I want them to know what they've done to me. I want them to experience it. I'll give them what they deserve. That's seeking revenge. Now, folks, neither the Old Testament nor the New Testament allows us to hold grudges or exact revenge. Last time we looked, I won't have you turn there, but last time we looked at Leviticus 19.18, Very familiar verse for the second half of it, which says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But here's how the rest of the verse goes. You shall not take vengeance. There's taking revenge, acting out, actually acting on the resentment, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people. There's the attitude of the heart, the seething resentment and anger and bitterness of the heart. Instead, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And if you want to know who's telling you this, the verse ends by saying, I am Yahweh. In other words, this isn't optional. I'm your God. This is what I'm telling you to do. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 22 says, Do not say, I will repay evil. (laughs) How many times is, is that exactly what we say? I'll get that person back. I'll show them. 
Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord, and He will save you. Proverbs 24, 29. Do not say, thus I shall do to him as he has done to me. Let me read that again. Thus I shall do to him as he has done to me. Ever heard yourself thinking that or saying that? Proverbs says, do not say that. And don't say, I will render to the man according to his work. I'm going to give him what he deserves. She's going to get what she deserves. Let's go to the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians 5.15 See to it that no one repays another with evil for evil. Paul couldn't be more comprehensive. See to it that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another, that is for fellow Christians, and for all people. So no matter who does you evil, don't repay them evil for evil. Instead, always be seeking that which is for their good. So then, when people sin against you, and of course this is hypothetical because I'm sure this never happens to you, but when people sin against you, when they treat you badly, not only is it not right to retaliate, listen carefully, it is sin. It is sin against that person, and it is sin against God, because that person is made in whose image? God's. That's why James says, don't use that tongue you've been given to bless God in one sentence and curse that person in the next. Because they're made in the image of God. Now, all of this sounds good. I mean, the general principle is pretty clear, right? Don't respond in hostility to the person who has treated you evilly. But how does this flesh out in real life? Well, to help us see what this general principle looks like, Jesus goes on to show us what he's demanding of us in several real-life illustrations when someone sins against us. He follows that general principle, do not resist the one who is evil, with four specific examples. You see this beginning in the middle of verse 39 down through verse 42. Four specific examples. Now, the details of each of these examples are bound inextricably to life in the first century. If you look at the first one, at the end of verse 39, the first example is a formal Jewish insult. The second example, in verse 40, has to do with a lawsuit intended to take the long robe that a man wore next to his body. The third example has to do with a Roman soldier conscripting a Jewish man to help carry his load. And the final example is a Jewish borrower trying to take advantage of the lending requirements of the Old Testament Mosaic Law. Now you may be tempted to look at those examples and think, well, this is pretty much irrelevant to my life. Listen, As we will see, nothing could be farther from the truth. Because while it's true that the details are tied to life in the first century, the categories of personal offenses that Jesus shares here are absolutely timeless. 
They translated perfectly in the first century. They translate perfectly in the 21st century. And if Jesus tarries, they'll translate perfectly in the 31st century. So what are the four categories of personal offenses that Jesus uses in these examples? Let me give you all four of them, and then we're going to go back and look at the first one. Here are the four categories of personal offenses. Number one, intentional attacks on our personal dignity. Intentional attacks on our personal dignity. Number two, intentional attacks on our personal property. Number three, governmental attacks on our personal liberty. Number four, intentional attacks on our personal generosity. What does it mean not to resist an evil person when there are intentional attacks on our personal dignity? Look at verse 39. Here's the general principle, but I say to you, do not resist an evil person. Here's the first specific example. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Now, even if you weren't raised in the church, you are very familiar with that expression. You hear it all the time, turn the other cheek, turn the other cheek. It has been so terribly abused and so misrepresented that I think we need to start by clarifying what this does not mean. What this does not mean. These words have been abused in a variety of ways, and I'm not going to deal with all the different ways that non-Christians have abused them. Let me just deal with two ways I think even Christians are tempted to abuse them. Number one, this does not mean non-resistance or non-violence, we could say. Those who hold a non-resistance argue, essentially this view argues, that all forms of physical violence are totally wrong in every circumstance. The most bizarre example I've ever read is from the writings of Martin Luther. Martin Luther said he knew a man quote, who let lice nibble at him and refused to kill any of them on account of this text, maintaining that he had to suffer and could not resist evil, end quote. I'm glad it doesn't mean that. That's not where most Christians will go. For most Christians who embrace non-resistance, well-meaning Christians, they believe that what our Lord is teaching here precludes the use of all force not only in war, but even in one's self-defense. This is a view, by the way, that has traditionally been held by Quakers and Mennonites, for example. And there are some who believe in non-resistance who have gone so far as to say it's even wrong for government to use force against criminals. Leo Tolstoy, the famous Russian novelist, came to this conclusion in his book, What I Believe, He explains how he came to believe it was wrong for a Christian to resist evil violently in any way. For Tolstoy, this meant that no Christian could serve in the army, no Christian could be a policeman, and he even wrote that no Christian should serve anywhere in the judicial system because it is a party to violence against fellow human beings. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part three of his series, An Eye for an Eye. 
Tom will have part four for you on our next program, and we hope you'll join us then. Well, Tom, there may be times when taking vengeance when wronged sure may seem like the best response, but that's not true in light of God's Word, is it? There certainly are times like that, and I think what it really brings us back to is the question of who gets to decide what's right. And of course, we know that as believers. We understand that our God is the standard of what's right and what's just, and He tells us, Don't take vengeance into your own hands. Leave that to the Lord. That's his right, his prerogative. And instead, we are to respond with trust in God and love and graciousness toward those who sin against us. These are hard things, and they're not things that we can do in our own strength. Left to ourselves, we want revenge. But the Holy Spirit who resides within us can give us the spirit of kindness, graciousness, and gentleness, even to those who have sinned against us. Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear from you. And if you haven't reached out before, or if you're a first-time listener, we'd like to send you Tom's book, Jesus' High View of Scripture, free of charge. Just subscribe to The Word Unleashed on our website, and we'll mail you a free copy of Tom's book. And don't forget to connect with us on social, at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.